welcome to the two-year bible a custom designed two-year bible reading plan with this weekly podcast here by myself chris case pastor of resonate church and i'm here with sarah pasquale the executive director of resonate hey there and so uh, we continue. Uh, hopefully this b- past week of reading has been really good, but you've also started really into the life of Jacob, which uh, for Sarah and I, I know, um, is a tough character in scripture to get yeah, our minds around. It's challenging. Um, it, it, some of the redemptive pieces uh, seem to be lacking <laughs> of us really understanding um, Jacob and uh, God's choosing of Jacob and the stories of what are we supposed to learn from that? And um, it's tough. Uh, other than, I mean, I think one big lesson is that God can and does use um, messy, broken people to to work through his plan, which for someone like me, that, that's good news. I'm glad he does because that's that's me. I'm, I'm one of those. Now, uh, do I do some of the stuff that Jacob does? I, I hope not. But um, but in terms of sin, am I that much better or worse off than Jacob? No, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm broken and sinful like Jacob. So, um, yeah, as we continue to, to explore and learn about Jacob's story, I think it teaches us about the sovereignty of God and that God uses all people, good and evil, though there's no one good, but you know what I mean? People, yeah. um, people who do wicked things. Yeah. And he uses them, them yeah. all for his sovereign plan, kind of whether they want to be used or not, or right. whether they're active or passive participants. Yeah. And it, it takes me back to Genesis 1-1. This, this is God's story. It's not right. a story about Jacob. And we're learning about Jacob so we can better know and understand God. Yeah. I'm even going to hint to, to the, the next major story. Like, that's that's the Joseph story. And yeah. It's the, the theme verse, I think, of the whole story is, look what you meant for evil. Like, all this stuff. Betraying me, throwing, throwing me into the pit, me ending up here. Like, God... God, God used still it used it for good, and um, and God had a plan with it, whether we liked it or not, and whether it involved a whole lot of wickedness or not. So uh, that God can bring about redemption in it. So, uh, yeah, we get the the start of the story where Isaac, uh, you have Isaac blessing Jacob, the sort of uh, the just trickster doing his trickery, uh, and um, him kind of dressing as Esau and ultimately getting the blessing from his dad. And it's important to know sort of that whole birthright thing. Like, um, um, yeah, that, that oldest should get the blessing, uh, the blessing, uh, in words and how things worked uh, historically for that culture. Like this is like what the father will say over the son is, is the blessing that would go with that child. And so, um, yeah, and, and and Jacob takes it, and so Esau's obviously frustrated about this. Yeah, and, um, and compare and contrast these blessings. I mean, they're almost opposite of one another. So they, if Jacob had designed this initial blessing for Esau and the second one for Jacob, and yeah. they got the reverse, it's a it's a significant difference in what their lives are to become. <clears throat> yeah, and we will watch those two lives play out very differently. Um, and but obviously Esau is not happy about how everything went down, uh, and then um, Rebecca basically says, "Hey, uh, you should go uh, to your extended family. Basically, you need to lay low for a little bit." Is what it really feels like uh, because your brother wants to kill you, um, and head back to to Laban, uh, who we we know of before. This is Abraham's extended family uh, up in the north, and so he goes down to Laban. Needs to find a wife. So in some ways, he's following the footsteps of Abraham. Yeah. But he's doing it because he's on the run. Yep. Yeah. It sort of uh, happens to be convenient that um, this could also be the place where he can find himself a spouse. Um, and while that's going on, we, we, we find out that uh, 
Esau uh, overhears all that kind of conversation and decides, well, um, I've taken a few Canaanite women as my wives, which he probably shouldn't have done. And those women are not great in the storyline. But um, it seems like Esau now is like, okay, I want to please my father. I want to do what's right. Um, But it's a little bit too little too late in a lot of ways. It seems like he missed his chance. Yeah, I I feel some (laughs) compassion for Esau in this story. And he's not a super reputable, highly respectable person either. But it just feels like he keeps, I mean, he made some poor impulsive decisions like selling his birthright for soup. Well, and he, yeah, he gets tricked by his brother. And then we're going to see his brother meet his own tricking match in Laban once he gets there. But before he gets there on the way, he goes to sleep on a rock, which doesn't sound very comfortable. Um, but um, he has this crazy dream with a ladder and angels going up and down. And um, it's peculiar. There's all sorts of weird movies and stuff made out of it. Uh, <clears throat> but it's sort of this, look, God, God's there. Like, and, and, and God's got a connection to this world and this place. And then God assures him even, uh, hey, I'm going to go with you. And I will bring you back to this land, but I will go with you. Um, yeah, and we see Jesus reference this specifically in John 151, talking about how Jesus is the ladder. He, it, It's not like Babel, where people tried to build a tower to climb up to God, but God himself descended down to earth to bring people up to him. Right. Yeah, that picture is not uh, is not the humans building that ladder. It's definitely God bringing the ladder. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jerry, uh, Jacob goes up there. Um, he uh, sees these two sisters, and one of them is, uh, for the best phrasing, homely. <laughs> but wait, before we go there, oh, I want to yeah, mention yeah, one more thing about Jacob's dream in that Jacob's Jacob makes a vow to God, but notice that it's conditional. He says, God, if you do this, if you're with me, if you provide for me, then you will be my God. Uh, And he sets up a pillar, but he doesn't build an altar like his uh, father or grandfather did. So we see a a lack of surrender here. This isn't like a conversion moment or a moment of, I'm going to start doing things right. He's still kind of in it for himself. Yeah, it's peculiar because God just said, I will go with you. And then he goes, well, if you'll go with me, then this, and then not only that, but then he says, this pillar shall be God's house. It's like, no, God, God just like, said, I, he's no, going to be I'm mobile with you. With you. <laughs> not, not here on this pillar, not here in this place of Bethel, but go with you. And then Bethel ends up turning out, having some questionable history from that point on in first Kings 13, Hosea 10 and Amos four. Like it's not, it's not the greatest place. Why you would name your church Bethel? I actually don't know, but, um, well, and it's, I, I don't know. It just makes me think of how sometimes we want God to be with us in certain places and then we want to leave them behind so we can go do our own thing after that. And so how often are we saying, okay, God will do this for me and do this for me and show up and give me a good experience at church and help me be a good Christian when I'm here. But when I go to work, I'm just going right. to do something else. Yeah. Yeah. And this, yeah, it's pre tabernacle too. So I, I don't know why people would think, He's just going to stop here. At least Tabernacle, you do have a little bit of understanding of like, oh, you are a little bit more confined in terms of how I should think about you. But anyways. Okay. Um, so Jacob. Jacob marries. Marries Leah. And Rachel. And um, Rachel. Yeah. And so uh, he works his tail off for one accidentally, not accidentally, according to Laban's tricks, gets the other one that he didn't necessarily want. And then he's got to keep working his tail off to get the one he wants. Um, and he ends up with these two wives in the process. So, uh, Jacob gets a bit of his own medicine. medicine. Yeah. He kind of gets, uh, tricked by another tricker <laughs> to use words that I don't think exist. Uh, and so, uh, but in the process, he gets a whole lot of babies out of it. 
um, uh, between the two women, between their bridesmaids, uh, bridesmaids, uh, handmaids, <laughs> very different than bridesmaids. Um, he gets all these, uh, women, which once again, this is a way to like read a story where you, you because Jacob's doing these things and because the women are doing these things does not mean that God condones this necessarily at all. Um, but that God will end up using these choices that seem questionable or seem not the best, but there's also ancient practices of, of some of these things that we just don't understand because we don't live in those times. So, yeah. Uh, and, I, and I hope you took a minute to look at the meanings of the names here, especially you can follow a little bit of Leah's story as you do this. Her first few children are named because she wants to be loved by Jacob. And so every time she has a son, she's like, Oh, maybe he'll love me now. Maybe he'll see me now. And then you see a switch and we don't know what caused it, but Judah becomes the name praise. And after that, you can see her identity based on how she names the sons becomes less about trying to win over her husband's affection and being who she is in Christ or who not in Christ, but who God has made her to be and being yeah. comfortable and at peace with that. Yeah. It's such a good transition for her as a character in the storyline. Um, and Jacob's prosperous. We, we kind of see this as a common theme. Abraham has a bunch of stuff that him and Lot have to split. Isaac does really well and Jacob does well too. And eventually I think he, he's like, I, I got to go back home. Like I, we have so much stuff. We're, we're, we're blessed. Uh, let's, let's head back uh, to the promised land. Um, and so uh, they do he, he comes up with sort of this plan. He's like, I'm going to take some of these sheep and these sheep and uh, based upon these patterns uh, and, and for whatever reason tells Laban about it. So then Jacob comes back the next day basically to come get it. And Laban has taken away all the things that Jacob thought he was going to come get. So Jacob, once again, uh, Laban gets the upper hand a little bit on Jacob, but then Jacob comes back around and we find out actually in, in that following chapter, as you read through um, the, the, there's a dream that, that, that Jacob has around these sticks that he's put down and it's basically like creating this whole weird animal mating thing. So these these animals would pr- speckled produce speckled animals versus the other kind of animals. It, and it works uh, for whatever reason. God's sovereignty in this weird mating process uh, for these animals, for Jacob ultimately to get a large sum of animals to take back with him to the promised land. And so they go, but Rachel steals her dad's idols. Which you probably shouldn't take your idols with you when you go back to the promised land. <laughs> That's probably not the the best choice uh, in the world. Uh, Laban comes chasing after them, um, and it seems like Jacob doesn't really know about the situation. And there's kind of a, an argument over uh, over what what's really uh, what's what's really at hand here. And then um, I, I think Laban and Jacob are just tired of of tricking each other and eventually like kind of part ways with this agreement uh, that even, even by the tone, even by the repetition of how they're making the agreement seems like they're, they're not reconciled in terms of like really finding a friendship, but, um, but simply going, all right, I'm tired of this. You, I'm tired of you tricking me. I'm tired of me trying to trick you. Let's just part ways. Let's just part ways. And I'm going to do it by my God and you're going to do it by your gods. And yeah. And take your idols. We don't want any part in that, which is great. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, Jacob will continue to be yeah, what it's Jacob not, is. Like, I don't know that we're ending on the highest note here from this week's reading. Nope. And we won't maybe start on the highest note at next week's reading, but keep keep pressing on to the Old Testament. Feel the tension. It's okay to feel it. You're feeling the brokenness and the discomfort and the like this isn't God created us to not be in disunity and we are in disunity because of the fall. And we see that here. We see oppression. We see wickedness. We see evil. 
And it makes us long for God to show up, doesn't it? At least for me, it does. Yeah. It's like intermission right at the uh, a turning point, or not even a turning point, right? Right at the lowest point in the story. It's like we're taking a break. Um, and so, yeah, we're picking up uh, with the New Testament reading. So maybe we'll get some hope here because that's often how Jesus' stories go until Easter week. And so um, we, we get this uh, woman that's uh, given forgiveness in Luke 7. Um, it sounds like other stories from the other gospels, but it's a little bit different than some of them. Uh, so there's a Mary Magdalene story near Passion Week where there's a bottle of expensive nard and stuff like that. But um, this story definitely seems different. They're in a Pharisee's house. So there's definitely a, uh, the audience here is is particular that a Pharisee would be uh, kind of hearing this story. And this woman's reputation as a sinner or a woman of the city. Uh, and... Um, However, Jesus has interacted with her has caused her this this emotional response where she's weeping, she's washing his feet, um, and and Jesus uses this as a moment to teach the Pharisees of about forgiveness, about uh, understanding. Look, like this 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 woman's sins are forgiven. That 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 her coming to me, her devotion towards me, her her love response to me. Um, in, involves the forgiveness of sins. And not only that, but like the beauty of Jesus turning to her right after that and like saying it to her face. Like first he's teaching the Pharisee and then he turns and says, woman, your, your sins are forgiven, which uh, for me, I, I need those reminders sometimes. Like I know factually that, that Jesus says my sin are forgiven, but sometimes like the, the beauty of, of that reiteration to my heart itself, like my yeah. sins are forgiven. And, and you think of someone like Simon, this Pharisee who spent the majority of his life, if not his whole life, trying to measure up and be enough. That's all he wants to do. And then this woman who he would say is the opposite of that comes right. in and is the one who receives mercy and grace from Jesus. Yep. And, uh, what Simon must have felt. I mean, he maybe felt anger. I, I, we don't know what he felt. He could have felt anger or he could have just felt real grief that he'd missed the point. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many times, and I think the gospel writers do this on purpose. So many times where we're like, we don't always find out how people left the story. Yeah. And I think that's for us as an audience to go, well, how are we going to leave the story? Um, I think the rich young ruler is one of the rare times we find a way. Oh, he went away sad. Um, yeah. But other than that, but then we get, uh, so not only do, have we just seen a highlight of this woman, but now we hear about these women that follow Jesus and they've got money. And it's always a question of like, even the mention of one of them, uh, her husband is basically holds Herod's money, which is like a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> and so like, Hey, uh, are, are they, because they have some control over that? Are they using some of that for Jesus ministry? Who knows? But, um, but you do have, I think the point is also you have these women who, um, the fact that they're even mentioned, um, is vital, let alone they're part of the inner they're traveling with him. They're contributing to the yeah, ministry that um, he's doing. Yeah. That's, that's so countercultural to any sort of rabbinic practice at the time. And so, um, Jesus certainly not only I mean, he cares about the outsiders, he cares about the women at the time, all that, um, that, that Luke's purposely highlighting. Yeah. And for us to remember, as we imagine this going on in our minds that Jesus had his 12 disciples, he had his inner circle, but he had tons of other people following him and walking with him too. So it wasn't just him and 12 other guys. Yep. Um, yeah. And the whole area is like, as I said, at the end of, I think last podcast is like, 
10, 20 miles around. So um, there's plenty of time for a lot of these people to, to have plenty of interactions, to walk with him. Even if they have homes they go back to and stuff like that, even though Jesus doesn't, um, there, there's still plenty of interactions as followers of Jesus. And then um, then Jesus starts going into some parables. Uh, they're not as condensed together as some other gospel writers are, but um, starts going into a few of them, uh, like the, the four soils or the parable of the sower. Um, where we hear about seed that's scattered and, and, and Jesus will actually clarify all these parts of the story uh, or did when you read it um, around the seed being the word of God and that each of these different paths or or soils or, or different ways that people respond to that word. Like sometimes they don't, nothing happens. Sometimes um, it seems like there's a little bit of enthusiasm, but it never really seems to take root. And sometimes um, it seems like it's actually growing, but then like, the cares of the world, money, power, whatever the cares of the world are, seem to have totally pulled that person off track. And then there's good soil that grows, and it's great. And <clears throat> yeah, we see this as Jesus's ministry model, and and we also get to take it as our own ministry model. Yeah, this is I mean, how we share the gospel. We scatter seed <clears throat> wherever we can. And, and as I just said, we do we don't get responses to people. So like he scattered seed <laughs> to the Pharisee, and he scattered seed to the crowd that came to the Beatitudes, and he scattered. He's doing it all the time, and some people respond and they start following him, and some don't. Um, and then he basically explains it as, look, those who have eyes to see, they're going to see it. Like there are some that are blind and can't see, and there's some that see it, and they're going to follow me. And and. I mean, I, I would say that that's a supernatural seeing that God opens eyes to see that and those people get it and the ones who don't, don't. Um, but I think the scattering of the seed becomes part of that next story, the lamp under the jar where it's like, okay, like <clears throat> now your job as disciples is, is not to, to go under the dark, not to, not to be hidden. It's, it's to go forth and shine light, like scatter seed everywhere you can. Know that not everybody's going to respond to that, but don't hide. Go, go do that. Um, and so, yeah, I think all those stories are meant to be read together. Yeah, and, and to point us to final judgment and accounting and what's to come and that we will all give account for the decisions we make and the things we do, we cannot keep things secret like we maybe think we can Yeah. in the long run. Yeah, yeah, I think that's good, especially when Jesus has warned, um, I mean, especially in the 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 sermon on the mount sermon on the plane like he's warned like look you're going to be persecuted things are going to go uh poor for you but go be light go go out um go go like this is because things are going to be harsh doesn't mean you go hide keep going and be a light to the world uh, and then we read about uh, jesus um his, his brother and mothers come to see him luke doesn't give us a whole lot of details on their motivation here uh but i think jesus just straight up at least in luke uses this as a teaching point to be like no like <clears throat> you my followers like you're let's my family redefine family yeah, let's, here let's, let's make sure we redefine family and it's not saying your biological family is not family but there's something new and there's something novel about uh, this crowd being brothers and sisters uh with him and then <clears throat> we get the story of um Jesus going across the lake. Uh, now, uh, just the statement of across the lake would certainly mean um, the the Gentile pagan collection of uh, cities called the Decapolis. Uh, it's pretty, uh, um, if you're a Jew, this is not the place you go. Uh, you're not even supposed to even say the name Decapolis. Uh, but um, this is where Jesus says, hey, let's go over here. So you got to imagine a few of these disciples kind of raising their eyebrows a little bit. Um, but But they head that way. And uh, as we're there, a uh, storm breaks out. It's, it's a little bit crazy. And Jesus is sleeping on the boat, which um, if you know your Bible, there's a little bit of a stormy boat with a 
person sleeping on it. That should uh, be a callback for you. Uh, and if you know what that is, it's the story of Jonah. Now, what's fascinating is the story of Jonah is the story of a prophet who is called to this dark pagan Gentile community uh, to go bring the gospel message to them. And so, like, I, I think I think there's intentional overlay of of that story here of of these disciples are going to the dark pagan Gentile crowd. And there's sort of this Jonah callback in the moment of, of will you go to these Gentiles? Yeah. And and the way we see Jesus calming the storm too, I think is a reference back to Exodus and the other times, the only time we see someone ruling the wind and the waves and the sea and the weather is God himself. And so we're seeing this guy is God. Yeah. Yeah. Psalm 89 is interesting because there's a little phrase about uh, the, the quieting of the waves uh, and the refrain of the song or the phrase of the Psalm is uh, who is like the God Lord, who is like this God. Um, and, and that's the disciples. That's almost our quote is who is this that is doing this? And so, uh, but they get to the other side, uh, this area called the Gerasenes Um and no surprise to a few of these disciples, probably the first thing they interact with is this crazy guy who's naked and out of his mind and possessed by a demon. He's like hanging on to the, the grave. Is it, is Luke include the, the, the tombstones and everything else? Um, it, it's, it's, it's like as, as they expected almost like, here's who comes here. Now there's some interesting context to the storyline because, uh, um, you find out that the demon identifies itself as legion. Now for the people at the time, that would have been a pretty clear trigger. Uh, legions are, um, Roman, uh, infantries, uh, groups of Roman soldiers and the legion that existed in this area at that time, um, their symbol, and I'll include a show note, uh, graphic of their actual symbol is the boar. It is the pig. And so, mm. uh, for, for the, for Jesus to have this encounter with basically what is the symbol of Rome and, and for him to go, okay, I got power over you too. And I can drive you out. And, and there's kind of a funny interaction where it's like, don't drive us into the, the depths of the, of the, of the lake. Don't drive us into the abyss. And Jesus goes, okay, I'll drive you into the pigs over there. And then they go into the lake. So uh, they end up getting what they d- didn't want. But um, I think overall, Jesus is, is, at least in, in that driving out the demon, because we get plenty of demons. Like why these extra details about the name of this demon and stuff like that, I, I think is, is ultimately to say, I mean, we just saw Jesus have power over nature. We've seen Jesus have power over healing and all that. I mean, Jesus even has power over the things of Rome. Um, Jesus is more powerful than Caesar. We shouldn't believe, we should be afraid of Caesar um, and, and afraid of even going to the places where uh, Rome is, uh, which um, we will see in the book of Acts. That's that's where we, our trajectory is. Um, and then all the townsfolk come down because they hear about the driving out of these pigs. So I, I don't think it's the healing of the man that tr- brings them down to the hill. The pigs are their livelihood. And basically their whole economy just went off the cliff into the lake. And, and now they're coming down to find out what happened. And then they hear about this healed guy who they don't seem to actually care that much about. They're, they seem to be more worried that, um, hey, Jesus, we need you to get out here. Because right. um, I, 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 I think from the storyline, from the way it's told, um, like the, the they're okay if Jesus does smaller things, particularly things that kind of benefit them, like this healing of this crazy guy. But as soon as Jesus interrupts the things that they don't want Jesus to interrupt, their finances, their money, their their economy, stuff like that, they want nothing to do with Jesus. Which to me, I mean, that's a straight up teaching point to my own life of um, yeah. uh, when, when Jesus brings a benefit or makes things easier for me, great. But as soon as Jesus wants to disrupt something in my life, um, 
Jesus, can you not touch that area of my life? Can you go somewhere else? Uh, and so, yeah. and then we see one of the first evangelists, aside from Jesus, into this area is that guy who got healed, the crazy guy. Yeah, who who knows like very one percent of the gospel. I mean, maybe he knows more. They could have sat down and talked or something yeah, that we didn't maybe. know. Seems like those town folks were pretty ready for him to go. Yeah, but but this is a command where he wants to go and he's told to stay. Yeah. Yeah. And next time Jesus ends up in this area, there's crowds and crowds of people. Yeah. And then we get um, kind of a, a, a story with a story within the story. Uh, there's a, a synagogue ruler whose daughter is very sick. Um, and as much as Luke has been highlighting outsiders, I, I think Luke also takes time to go, okay, but the gospel, this good news, this kingdom of Jesus is also for the insiders too, for, for them to repent and believe. And so, um, but in the middle of that story, like even for the insider, it's interrupted by a bit of an outsider. Uh, this woman who's bleeding, she would have been very unclean. She's desperate. She spent all the money she has, um, truly an outsider. And, um, she comes up behind him and touches the fringe of his garment. Now, um, it, uh, there had been some messianic belief, particularly out of Malachi uh, 4 2, that um, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings, which um, it also reads as healings in his fringe and in, in, in the edges. And so uh, there was thoughts that when the Messiah comes, even even the tassels or the edges of his cloak would bring healing. And so. Um, and we see that Jesus didn't prioritize the powerful over the week. He stopped what he was doing to help someone who seemed helpless and who people would walk by. Yeah. There's definitely an equality between uh, the two, if not even a prioritization of uh, this woman who is bleeding and uh, which makes it interesting because we get a mention of like this woman, this girl's 12 years old and this woman's been suffering for 12 years. Like there's, there's things that they have in common as well um, as if they're part of the same people that Jesus is coming to. Um, but then Jesus wraps up by healing the daughter. Uh, in, in in the story. Yeah, and it's kind of fun to put these stories side by side and to, to compare them. We see something having to do with a 12, the number 12 in there, them being referred to as daughter or child, yep. and that there's a component of faith that is required for both of them yep. for healing. Yep, faith and trust that Jesus is going to do what Jesus is going to do. Yeah. Um, and then Jesus sends out the 12. He tells her basically, don't don't take anything with you, uh, which I think at some level is for them to, to go to these towns and find someone. Uh, sometimes we call it a person of peace, find someone that um, will welcome them in, will connect with them. Otherwise, keep keep moving on, keep off your feet. But I think um, Jesus does this and he says, like, I'm giving you the authority to go do this, which uh, I think is a, a, a um a hint towards the future because it's we will see yeah. the great commission. Jesus goes all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now you go and do this. It's like this mini trial run of his authority given, uh, but he's not ready to do it yet. Mostly because he hasn't died and sent his spirit yet. And so um, we, we get like a sample of what's to come. And then we find out Herod is perplexed by Jesus. It seems randomly thrown in there. You guys can take your guesses and email me if you really want on what you think that means. Um, but then Jesus feeds 5,000, which I think is a, such a fascinating story. Um, we get a lot of details. We get a lot of numbers. We get a lot of um, um, specifics in the story. And at first, everybody's hungry because they're out in the middle of nowhere and, and, and Jesus has been teaching. And I love that Jesus just turns to his disciples and is like, you feed them. <laughs> like, it's just, uh, I'm and sure you know, his disciples are like, what? <laughs> well, I mean, they just, like, they had just used Jesus' power and authority over demons and curing diseases. Yeah. So you would think they'd be like, okay, we'll give it a try. <laughs> but. Yep. 
but uh, the numbers in the story, uh, once again, uh, even going back to our, our primers, uh, I think they matter. I think they're very symbolic here uh, for a reason. We find five loves and two fishes. And, and even in that thing, uh, the, the primer, like five, constantly had, had a reminder of like the Torah, the law, the, the word of God, um, the two tablets as part of that. And, and not only that, but those add up to seven. It's like the complete total of what God tells us and God speaks to us. Um, they're, they're, so they're, they're feeding them, yes, bread and fish, but they're, they're feeding them the, the word of God. They're feeding them the truth. And not only that, but they're feeding 5,000 people, the, 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 the people, the, the Jewish people, that's such an identifier for them. So, so the five of the Torah, the 1,000 as sort of like um, uh, a complete total sum, uh, as 1,000 often represents in scripture, uh, there's 5,000 of them. So there's this total group of, of Hebrews. That's why uh, in the other gospels, we'll find uh, Jesus go to the Gentile territories and feed 4,000, which you kind of get the four directions of a map to the Gentile nations and that number there. Um, and then there's 12 left over. It's like Jesus. Jesus teaching his disciples, look, our role is to feed the people of God, the word of God. Yeah. And and guess what? There's more than enough to go around uh, that there's even the 12, like the 12 leftover Gentile groups left over. And then if you read the other gospels, when they go, or the, the Hebrew groups, and then when you read the other gospels, uh, there's seven leftover, which probably represent the seven Gentile nations. And so- um, I think this also a, takes us back to Exodus and God providing bread for them in the desert. Yeah, and Exodus sixteen, bread in the desert. But and there's ex- also this moment where he's up in the mountain a bit again, and how the story's kind of told, and 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 bringing that. They sit in groups of fifty, like in the Jethro story. There's so many interesting pieces back to Exodus that show us back that that these are God's people, but I think also illustrate with all of these tiny little points that Jesus is God. He's not just another guy, but all of the works he's doing are pointing back to things that God has done. Yeah. And he feeds his people. And, and what's great is he calls his disciples to, to do the same. Like the man in the desert didn't require the people to, produce, to do anything. It just showed. Um, right. But now God's, Jesus is saying, no, I, I, I will provide the food and, and you go and do the same. And so um, it's such a beautiful story, a beautiful teaching point. That's not just about a bunch of hungry people that got fed in the desert. Um, so, uh, and then Psalm 78, you want to say something about that? Yeah. So Psalm 78 is a good lead to that. Let's tell people what we've done. It's, it's a long Psalm, but it starts out saying, Hey, we're going to tell to the coming generation, the works that God has done. It's up to us to con- continue to communicate the gospel and the truth and the character and the story of God. And then it goes on and telling this long story of that. So think about Think about where or how you are sharing this with the coming generation. How are the stories and the faiths that we live out being developed in those who are younger? Yeah, that's really good. Um, So uh, next week, uh, we're going to continue in Jacob's story and then start into Joseph's story. When you get to um, uh, uh, Joseph and his betrayal from his brothers, and then we suddenly like take this weird right turn to Judah and Tamar. Look at those two stories. See, mm. see what's similar. See what's different. Um, I, I don't think it's haphazard that we suddenly, totally randomly, get this Judah and Tamar story in the middle of the Joseph narrative. So, um, take a moment, think about that. Yeah, and I'd say just. Take a second, too, to look at the breakdown of the different subjects and purposes of the stories we're reading in Luke. Are you seeing any patterns to Jesus appointing disciples or specific kinds of healings or different kind of miracles? Why? Why is it in the order it's in? Yeah. So thanks, y'all. And we'll uh, talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.